More than a hundred years ago, in one of the earliest episodes of the Akimbo podcast, I jumped on the bandwagon about the telephone. The telephone was still in its infancy. Most people weren't using it. But I went on and on about how it was going to transform the world as we know it, changing real estate, the way businesses worked, international relations, politics, media, and eventually leading us to bulletin boards and the internet. I'm back. I'm back to talk about another sea change, one that is also easily minimized, but is going to rework the fabric of our culture. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about video conferencing, Zoom, and the future of everything. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Get better clients. There, in three words, is the strategy of any freelancer who wants to do better work. Get better clients. You can't work more hours, but you can work for people who appreciate the work you want to do. They will push you harder. You will do better work. They will talk about you. You will get paid more. You will be more proud of what you produce how to get better clients. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and we have built a workshop just for you. If you work for yourself, I really think you need to check it out. It's at www.thefreelancersworkshop.com. It's not a bunch of videos. It's a workshop. You will work with other freelancers, working your way forward to figure out how to do this work that matters. I hope you'll take a minute to check it out thefreelancersworkshop.com. We would love to have you join us. Yes, I'm talking about Zoom. You've spent too much time on Zoom, and the reason it feels like too much time is because it's enforced and it's not used properly. It's not used in the way the technology wants to be used. But more about that in a minute. And throughout this riff, I'm going to use the word Zoom when I'm talking about any sophisticated, low-latency video conferencing system that is widely adopted. It's entirely possible that Zoom will win, but it's also possible that they will listen to people who want it to simply be a place for traditional meetings and occasional emojis and video filters that someone else will figure out how software that combines the best of the telephone and television two of the three biggest changers of our culture over the last hundred years, will transform how we live and how we work. I've come up with a list of 18 things, some small, some big. I want to take you through them because some of them will resonate and maybe you'll run with these ideas. Number one, timing. It used to be that a meeting had to take more than three minutes because going to a meeting and getting back from a meeting was a commitment. You might drive across town to meet with your agent. You might fly across the country to make a sales pitch. Or you might get invited to a wedding. All of these things involved a lot of schlepping, both context switching and physical location. As a result, we decided to honor the people who were coming first by not starting the meeting on time because what will happen if people are late and miss the beginning? And second, by having the meeting last more than three or four minutes. When 
we brought the telephone along. We didn't do that. We didn't schedule 30-minute phone calls just to check in on a relative because starting and finishing a phone call was a pretty straightforward task. I went to a wedding on Zoom last week, and like real weddings, the first half hour consisted of people sitting quietly listening to background music. But in a real wedding, that half hour of buffer time, because people don't want to miss the beginning, because people feel socially shamed for showing up late, that half hour in a real wedding involves people chatting with other people that they know. In a Zoom wedding, in which a traditional wedding is forced into Zoom, everyone sat there silently because they were all on mute. Well, timing rears its head because the fact is if you call a wedding for 9 o'clock at night, you can start the wedding at 9 o'clock because everyone knows how to get there on time. Which leads to the second part, which is commuting. Commuting goes away. It might go away when it comes to going to one meeting, or it could go away when it comes to going to the office in general. Some people have a job where they have to go to the office, maybe a surgeon, for example. But for a lot of people, the purpose of the office is to be with the other people who are exchanging ideas. And if we use video conferencing properly, we can dramatically accelerate the efficiency and, yes, the joy associated with connecting with other people professionally if we use it properly, as opposed to just jamming another 30-minute meeting into another Zoom room. That what we've built is this system that transforms space, just like the telephone did, bringing us right next to somebody who we need to be right next to and then away from them when we're done. Number three, the size of the group. There was a natural limit to how many people could be on a phone call, pretty much two. Conference calls have always been a problem because we can't see other people and thus get signals about who's going to talk next or how people are reacting or responding. But the flexibility of a video call, if used properly, means three people, 30 people. If you do it right, you can dramatically shift the size of the group. Now, a lot of people who are misusing Zoom are viewing it as a way of exposing status and power. They're commanding 20 people to be in a meeting that should have three. They're not using recordings or shared Google Docs as a way of actually getting participation. They're simply lecturing to people who are victims of their power. Again, we're going to see a dramatic shift happen as flexibility and flow show up. People adding folks to meetings, people leaving meetings, working its way through the day as we discover how to connect when we don't have the barriers of space involved. The next idea has some sub-ideas. I'm calling it multimodal. When we're on a phone conference call, the only thing you can do is talk. But on a video conference, you can talk, you can see other people, you can text and you can work on a shared doc all at the same time. Multimodal is a game changer because side conversations don't have to detract from what the meeting was for. What we're able to do is to create environments of intensive creativity where lots of things happen in a very short period of time. 
almost like a Harlem Globetrotters game, almost like a charrette at an architect's office. No look passes, people working things behind the scenes, things weaving left and right and then coming together almost in real time to create something that could never be created anywhere but here. And this is one reason why number six, breakout rooms are so important because breakout rooms change the rhythm of what is happening. Instead of it being this enforced, synchronized march in which most people are bored most of the time, video conferencing creates this environment where we can take a group of eight, breaking it into twos, break it into fours, break it into a five and a three, go off, sprint, come back, back and forth and back and forth, working together inside the medium to create something of real value. Number seven, video. Video, as we learned from television, is incredibly powerful at weaving the culture. If you think that people can't see you when you're on mute, you are mistaken. Showing up in the office has one other important function, which is people see you. They see your energy. They smell your pheromones. They are able to engage with you, your emotional energy, etc. Well, Zoom is a poor substitute for that. But because we're forced to use it right this minute, it is a substitute for it. And people who choose to bring energy to that interaction are adding more value than those that don't. This is more than just putting on the touch-up filter. This is choosing to exert energy on a platform that rewards you for doing so. Again, it's on the organizer for organizing bad Zoom meetings. Don't do that. Organize them with intent for the right reason. If you can send a memo, send a memo. But if you can't send a memo, if we're trying to create this future of interaction, we're at level one, and there's at least 12 levels left to go. The next thing that video conferencing does that the telephone couldn't do is it can be asynchronous. What I mean by this is that synchronized conversations require everyone to be on the conversation in real time at the same time. This is really expensive. It's expensive because what it means is that you have to stop what you're doing and do this with everyone else at the same time. This is one reason why so many organizations that are finding people at home are demanding synchronized Zoom calls because in the back of their head, they want to make sure people are working because in the back of their head, they're worried that somebody's out walking the dog when they should, quote, be at work. And so we demand butts and chairs. We want to look people in the eye, even if they're sort of snoozing on us. Because again, it's about demonstrating power and status. The alternative asynchronous says, wait a minute, I can make a six-minute video. I can send it to everyone who needs to watch it. People can watch it at built-up speed. They can go back and re-watch it. They can take notes. And then we can have the short meeting where we discuss what needs to be discussed. But the asynchronous part do it at your own pace when it fits into your schedule, changes the economic dynamic of what's on offer. Number nine, recording. Richard Nixon taught us that recording your meetings and phone calls might not be such a good idea. These people don't start behaving. It may be they have a death wish. But we need to assume that lots of Zoom calls are going to be recorded whether you know it or not. What happens when it's on the record? What happens when we can actually create recordings 
and then apply insight and data collection to what was said to actually figure out what's working in the meetings, what's not, where are we headed, and why. At the same time, we now have real-time translation. This is already built in to Google Meetings. What it means is that you can subtitle your conversations in real time in just about any language in the world. If this was on a Star Trek episode in 1964, no one would believe it. And here it is. It's a commonplace. Anyone can have it. It's free. What this means is that while there will still be misunderstandings, international cooperation is significantly easier than it used to be. And if we combine number nine recording and number 10 translation, we get transcription. And what transcription means is that we can end up with a written record of everything that was said. Once there's a written record of everything that was said, it's searchable. We can go back through the archive. Who said what about what? Suddenly, the interactions we are having at work can become computer-assisted. All that stuff that used to just disappear into the ether is now there, on the record, easy to understand, to go back over, to figure out the intent, and to make sure we're doing it right. Number 12, this is a big frontier, which is computer-aware. Because we have a transcription, because we have a recording, because AI is now really good at listening, imagine what happens when we point a computer to what's going on inside one of these meetings. Imagine what happens when we invite a computer to these meetings, when we can ask it a question, when it can teach us something we don't know, when it can chime in with data we didn't even know it had. Suddenly, the AI, which knows a lot about our history, can say back to us the thing that we merely asserted in a previous era, which leads to number 13, triggers. What happens when the computer that's listening to everything we're saying hears certain phrases and knows that it can then play a video for everybody, knows that it can then send a text to everybody who's in the meeting? Now, let's just catch up because we're not even finished with the list. We're talking about a world where real estate is valued totally differently, where commutes are a choice, where there's a transcription, where there is computer-assisted insight into what's going on, where meetings might last six minutes, where people get called into meetings for the right reasons and asked to leave for the right reasons, where we have breakout rooms, where people are really heard when it is time for them to be heard, where the power dynamics are shifted from an organizer using an hour of our time, because that's what Outlook says the meeting should last for, to many organizers working together to actually create lots of positive energy as the result of what just happened on the screen. Okay, you still with me? Number 14, one of my favorites, is gamification. What happens when there are points and scores and badges and wins for people as they work their way through their day at work? Because the fact is, we get them everywhere else. It's one thing to get frequent flyer miles. It's quite another to score a lot of points in the video game we're entertaining ourselves with that night. If we can figure out what the proper metrics are, why isn't there a game associated with so much of this work we do? Every marketer is playing a game. What's the click rate? What's the open rate? What's the conversion rate? They're constantly cycling things to figure out what works. Well, why isn't that happening in meetings? Why isn't there a real-time way for people to say, you're talking too much? 
Why can't Zoom report back? Hey, there are eight people in this meeting, and when you started talking, five of them defocused the screen and started browsing the internet. Why wouldn't you want to know that? This is going to change the way we talk to each other professionally, because new data is coming to us in new ways. All right, I got three more. Number 16, it's always on. What does it mean for it to be always on? Well, your office is always on. From the time you get there till the time you leave, you're in the office. Well, look for Zoom rooms to be always on. Drop in when you need to talk to certain people. Drop out when you're done. This idea of checking in with one another, not on a regularly scheduled basis, but at the water cooler, there's nothing about computer video conferencing that makes that difficult at all. Number 17, like most things associated with the internet, it scales to free. And once it's free, it's widely adopted. And once it's widely adopted, the network effect becomes ever more powerful. It's inconceivable in 1985 to say to somebody, what's your phone number? And they say, I don't have a phone, just as it's becoming clear that everybody is going to be engaging in this video format. Because going to work, spending an hour, parking, sitting in an office, only interacting with two or three people who happen to have physical proximity to you, and then getting back in the car and driving all the way home, people are going to look at that like it was crazy, because at some level it was. And what this means is that first, organizations that deal just in information will go virtual, and then bit by bit, as fast as they can, all organizations will. The idea that banks investment banks, need to call people back to work in New York, that is nothing but a power grab. Because if they devoted any percentage of their rent to actually building video conferencing that worked as opposed to being an analog of what they're used to at work, they would discover a huge impact in the way people are given a voice and the way information flows. And then, number 18, Chris Anderson's The Long Tail. Right now, you only get to interact with a small group of people who are in your circle, and you have little in common with most of them. But what the long tail does is it creates pockets of people who share something. So where are the nine people who are launching a Kickstarter for their new novel today? Those nine people might benefit by connecting with each other in a Zoom call. Somebody is going to figure out how to create this ongoing circle of focused, ad hoc, small groups, maybe not even ad hoc, maybe long term, of people with a lot in common. These people are not connected by geography. They don't even get a paycheck from the same company, but they desperately need to be connected. This pandemic has wrought a lot of damage, but one thing it has done is accelerated the arrival of the future. It moved video conferencing three to five years ahead. Boom, all at once. It's no longer a discussion about whether or not you've been on a Zoom call. Of course, you have. The discussion now going forward is whether we're going to get stuck with skewmorphs, whether we're going to get stuck putting all of the worst parts of meetings into video conferencing and leave out all of the magic potential that it has. It's going to cause massive disruption real estate alone, transport, commuting, fashion, all of it is going to be changed by the fact that humans desperately want to connect with one another. And this machine, this machine is no substitute 
for high-fiving someone in the hall, for being able to judge their body language in a way that we've been studying for hundreds of thousands of years. But at the same time, used properly, it creates so many opportunities for people to speak up, to go outside their comfort zone, to be heard, to be connected with the people they need to be connected to. It is the dynamic of our future, certainly for the next five years. Figuring out how to be great at it and figuring out how to create a platform for others to be great at it is a new frontier. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some really juicy questions from earlier episodes plus an announcement. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. I wrote a new book. It was originally called Trust Yourself. But my editor persuaded me correctly to change the title to The Practice. If you'd like to see a free excerpt and a summary, visit trustyourself.com. Got to do something with that domain. Check it out. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. I truly love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this episode or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Before we get to Sue's question, I wanted to give you an update about Akimbo, the home of the Alt-MBA, and the other workshops that are run often with me as the lead voice. As of last week, Akimbo is a B Corp, which means that it is legally obligated to work in addition as a company to be in the public interest. And I'm thrilled that my colleagues, Alex Peck and Marie Schott, will be owning and running the organization. So I'm going to be focused on new workshops. I'm working with Ramon Ray, TK Coleman, Annie Duke, and the one and only Margot Aaron on some that we'll be announcing upcoming. And I am thrilled that Akimbo is now structured and organized to become the institution that it can be, helping people learn, not just get educated, helping people lean in and connect in a time when there isn't nearly enough connection going on. Congratulations to the team. I can't wait to see what they build. Hello, Seth. It's Sue Hetherington here. Greetings from a little valley in southwest Wales. Recently, I've returned to my most favourite book of yours, Graceful, a small but perfectly formed ebook published in 2010. And I've been wondering two things. Firstly, 10 years on, what are the themes of Graceful that need to be heard and perhaps reinterpreted for today? Secondly, I'm especially interested in innovation, and I wonder what graceful innovation looks like and how we can inspire and encourage each other to pursue this, perhaps contrasting with the growth at all costs mantra we so often hear. That's thanks in Welsh. Thank you for this question, Sue. I've been thinking about that ebook a lot in the last six months or so. I've posted it in the show notes if anyone wants to take a look. It's free. It's based on my book, Lynchpin. And the idea in Graceful is resilience, that there are two ways to change the culture. 
The old model, the capitalist industrial model, is about scarcity and power. That if I have it, you don't have it. And if you have it, I don't have it. And the idea of scarcity and power is that we can force change to happen by leveraging our access to capital, by becoming a monopoly, by forcing people to do things they might not want to do. The alternative, which I think is more modern and more hopeful, and what we need right now, it's also more resilient, is the idea that culture reflects what we put into it. The more we contribute, the more we get back. The more we contribute, the better the culture gets. The better the culture gets, the better it is for everyone. And so we can argue that it makes no sense to pay taxes for a park because other people who didn't pay the taxes will benefit from the park. But that sort of argument means that there are no parks. And I hope we can agree that life is better if there are parks. And we can multiply this times public school. We can multiply this times public health. The idea of graceful and resilience is that each of us can take responsibility to show up and say, I'm turning on a light, to show up and lead, to show up and make things better. That opportunity works even when the world is upside down. In fact, it works especially when the world is upside down. Thanks for teeing up that question, Sue. Kia ora, Seth. This is Peter in London. I have a couple of reflections and questions about your episode on interoperability. I'm currently completing a PhD in design engineering where my focus is designing for improved human connectivity. So you got me thinking about the social side of interoperability. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on language, currency, and capitalism through the lens of interoperability. Language, in some instances, seems a brilliant example of a cooperatively interoperable system as it allows people who have no prior experience of each other to communicate, yet it can also create adversarial conflict. And how about currency and capitalism? Currency seems a great example of a tool that facilitates cooperative interoperability, but many aspects of capitalism seem to stimulate adversarial interoperability. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any or all of the above, and thanks again for the great work that you do. Cheers. This one can go really deep, and I'm looking forward to reading your PhD thesis. Interoperability is different than adversarial interoperability, so let's talk about both. Language is a beautiful example of each of them. Interoperable, because a language that only you speak is worthless. That the idea of a language is, here's the dictionary, here's the thesaurus. Anyone who wants to can speak it. We can't stop you. And this is why grouchy grammarians are such a ridiculous sideshow, because the language doesn't belong to you. The Oxford comma doesn't belong to you. It is a way all of us communicate with each other. And so language is plastic. It changes. Someone can show up with new words, new phrases, new ways of engaging. And if others choose to engage in that way, it becomes part of the language. If they don't, the person feels like a babbling fool because no one understands what they were getting at. And a lot of what we do as we work in culture is change the culture based on the words that we use. So it is interoperable, and it's also adversarial in that you can't keep someone from speaking your language. If you try, you will defeat the entire purpose of the language itself. And so currency began as the way for the king to give his soldiers a method for buying stuff when they were out on patrol, when they were on their way to war. 
the late David Graeber wrote about this in his fabulous book, Debt. Here's how you do it. If you're the king, you print up some currency, you give it to your soldiers, and you make two rules. One, everyone in the kingdom has to accept the money in exchange for supplies for the soldiers. And two, taxes have to be paid in the money the soldiers have. Boom, you have an economy. And that economy is based on an interoperable currency that anybody can trade for. Now, of course, it's not adversarial in that you can't print up your own currency. As soon as you try to print up your own currency, it's no longer scarce, and currency is based on scarcity. So what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin was the idea of using a math formula and a clever social network hack to create scarcity and value in something that is interoperable. I'm not sure if Cory Doctorow would say it's adversarial, it's open. It's open in that built into the nature of Bitcoin is it's all inspectable. The blockchain is public. But then we throw into the mix capitalism, industrialism, monopoly. Because these things work really hard to create new forms of scarcity. There's only one hardware store in town. Walmart puts everyone else out of business in the neighborhood, so you have to shop there. That is not open in the way that Bitcoin is open. But is there adversarial interoperability? Well, at some level. One of the ideas surfaced by people like Tim Wu in the modern anti-antitrust movement is the idea that one way we undermine the inexorable rise of monopoly is by ensuring adversarial interoperability, that you ought to be able to see your files on Google. You ought to be able to extract your social graph from Facebook, because if you could, you could go to another network with just a few clicks. If that was possible, then all the people who were seeking to win by being the only one would have to up their game so that they could actually be seen as the best one. So we could rant about this all day long, but I hope that that's a good start. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.